I'm going to read for you some quotes, and I want you to try and guess in your mind, not out loud, who said these quotes or who is saying these things. Um, so here we go. Make the lie big. Make it simple. Keep saying it, and eventually people will believe it. <laughs> not out loud. <laughs> You cannot run faster than a bullet. Politics is when you say you're going to do one thing while intending to do another. Then you do neither what you said nor what you intended. I don't care if they respect me so long as they fear me. It's not me. It's not for me, he says. I've tried human flesh and it's too salty for my taste. What good fortune for governments that the people do not think. We love death. The U.S. loves life. That is the difference between us two. Humanitarianism is the expression of stupidity and cowardice. I will leap into my grave laughing because the feeling that I have, five million human beings on my conscience is an extraordinary source of satisfaction. Let us have a dagger between our teeth, a bomb in our hands, and infinite scorn in our hearts. Who would say such things? Who would say the kind of things that you just heard? I don't know if you guessed. I don't know if you have an idea of the kind of people who would say these things. You dictators. Men who have absolute power and have crazy ideas and use those crazy ideas on other people, actually have the power to do those things to other people. Men like Genghis Khan, Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Idi Amin. Thank you. These are the men who said these things. And the reality is that we live in a broken world with broken people who lead broken systems. And so the question is, how then do we live in a world of broken people, broken systems, in a way that honors God? It is a difficult question because uh, so many people are wondering, how do we live wisely in light of the fact that we live in a world that is run oftentimes by maniacs. And so today, what the teacher is going to help us to see is how to live under authority and how to live under absurdity. How to live under authority and then how to live under absurdity. Ungodly authority and a sort of disorienting absurdity, as you're going to see as we go so if you're there, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Now if you look at 
chapter 8 and verse 1. Verse 1 seems to be kind of out of place, doesn't really have a home. People don't know if it belongs in chapter 7 or chapter 8. In verse 1 it says, Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? The implication is no one. A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. So what is he saying? He's saying simply that when you are a person who is wise, it's obvious to everybody who's around you. Like your face is shining. Back when I was young, my mom used to put baby oil on my face. So I'd come out the house shining. People would know, your mom, your mom got to you, huh? When somebody's wise, you can tell in their, in their face. You can tell it changes them. And so that's the lens through which Koheleth wants us to see these two areas of life, the authority and the absurdities of life. So the title of the message is Between Two Kingdoms, Between Two Kingdoms. So let's first look at authority, authority. Now, has anybody ever told you, I told you so? Anybody ever said, yeah, I told you so? Maybe you were about to buy something and your spouse said, you know, you don't need that. He said, I need it. I really, really need it. He said, no, you don't need that. And then months later, you realize, I didn't need that. Or you ever been driving somewhere and someone in the car said, I think you take a left here. You say, no, the Spirit is telling me to go straight. <laughs> and then you end up in Never Never Land, right? What happens when you don't listen and they say, I, I, you, I told you. How about that person that says, you shouldn't get into that relationship. You get into that relationship, it's going to be hurt. Ah, the Lord has let me know I'm going to lead him to Christ. It's fine, I know. I... And then what ends up happening? Say, I told you so. See, the worst thing is that as human beings, we can tell somebody, I told you so, and it's really an opinion oftentimes, it's a guess. We don't know. But what if God tells you something? Shouldn't we listen to what God says? This is what God said to the Israelites. Israelites said, we want a king. He said, you don't want a king. So we do want a king. He said, why? Because we want to be like all the other kingdoms around us. All the other kingdoms around us, they have a king, and so we want a king too. He said, if you get a king, what they're going to do is they're going to tax you. They're going to pull all of your men into uh, battle. You're, it's going to be terrible. They're, you're not going to want a king. But we want a king. He said, okay. Gave him a king, and what happened? All that stuff happened to them. Why? Because he said, I told you so. Because when you put men in positions of power, sinful men, they often use that power to oppress people. And we've seen this in history. We've seen this in our own lives. When we get a little bit of power, it sometimes corrupts us. And this is the case. When you look throughout history, you see all kinds of royal political leaders, and they use their power to hurt people, not to help people. There are very few kings that you can look at in history that were actually good. They always, always use their power for harm. And so if we're living in a world like that, when we're under different kinds of authority, then how then should we live? One person said, don't bother to vote. The, gov the government always gets in. They don't, it's all the same. See, we're used to a democracy. This nation itself was birthed out of a desire to escape tyranny 
and to start a whole new thing and to make sure there's not too much power centered in one person. And a king believed in the divine right, which means they believed that God gave them the authority. And so because God gave them the authority, they had the power to do whatever they wanted to do. That's how a king thought and operated. But we said, no, it's not, it's not safe to give power to one person. Let's spread it out. Now, we can still abuse that, as we've seen in our own nation. But the point is, how is it that a man or a woman is to live in a world where you have people who take the power that they have and use it in a way that is dangerous to other people? How do we live in a broken world? So look at verse 2 with me. It says, number two, uh, verse 2, obey the king's command. So Coelho is going to give us four ways to live under authority. Here's the first, obey. Obey. Verse 2, obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. How do you live under authority? Obey. Say, obey. Obey those people? That seems like a lot to you to ask me to obey someone like that. What does the New Testament say? If you read in Romans chapter 13, this is what Paul says. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why, also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So someone who's in the court of the king, who's there to help him, to give him advice, he says, you made an oath, you need to honor the king. And because we're in a global pandemic now, this is very relevant to us because a lot of people are asking the question, well, how far can the government go before we decide, you know what, I'm not going to do that? Because Romans 13 is clear that we're supposed to obey the government. But we have to balance that with something that Peter said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the government told them, stop preaching, stop talking about Jesus. Peter said to them, the other apostles, they also said, we must obey God rather than men. So here's where the, the struggle has been for Christians throughout the centuries is, where is that line? When the government says, wear this. When this government says, get that. When the government says, stop meeting. What do we do? Now here's the, I'm not going to try and decide or take sides on that. Because for some people, they would say, I see what God's word says 
And I know there's a pandemic, but I see what God's word says, and I'm going to continue what God's word says. Other people look, say, well, I see other things in what God's word says, so I'm going to go that way. And here's what we prayed about this morning. We don't have to be divided over it. We don't have to hate each other over it. We can, we can say, you know what? We don't see eye to eye on this. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ, and we just don't come to the same conclusions. We're both trying to follow the Bible, which says honor God, honor the government as well. It's not forget the government because if you do that, you're actually saying forget God. Because it says, again, in Romans, that the government is God's what? Servant. So to go against the government for no good reason, just because you don't like what they're saying, is to actually go against God. But we do know that there are people in the government who do things that are wrong. So how do we balance that? I don't know. <laughs> in each situation is different. And you know we're in a time where people are all over the place, but we want to try and honor the word of God. So he says to this person, what, number one, obey. Here's the second thing he says. How do we live under authority? We obey. Secondly, stay. Look at verse three. Do not be in a hurry to leave the presence, the king's presence. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. To leave the king's presence in a hurry could be seen as disrespect. You never just want to leave out of, and, and the implication is, you made a suggestion to the king that the king didn't listen to. And so because he didn't listen to you, you're upset and mad, and now you want to storm out. Now, we all know how we react when our kids do that. Go to your room. Oh! Blood pressure to 400 over 400 immediately. Imagine you doing that before a king who has all the power in the world. No one can say anything to him. See, what he's saying here is you need to be careful. Oh, the Lord's on my side. You will be dead. You think you could just say whatever to the king. He's the king. So sometimes you need to stay in a situation, even though it's hard or difficult. I know some people who they're always switching jobs. They never stay in one job. Every time you see him, you work here? Yeah. What happened? I thought you worked there. Man. <laughs> My boss, man, he just thought he could just tell me to be on time. And I was like, you ain't the boss of me. He's like, I kind of am. He's like, well, I ain't going to listen to you. And every job they have, they're always in a different job because they can't stay under authority. So obey the, obey the, the leaders. Also stay. It, it doesn't mean that you do things that are against what God's called you to do. But it does mean you do need to have uh, some faithfulness in the area where you are. So obey, stay. What's the third thing? Run away. <laughs> Look at verse 3 again. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? So in some situations, it might be better for you to run away. Now, there's two ways you can take this. One way is to take it that the king is saying that, or the king wants you to do something that you don't want to do. But the way you probably should read it is that because the king doesn't listen to you, you go to the side with others and plot against the king to kill him, to do evil against him. Here's, here's what Kohoth is saying. Don't be a part of an evil plot to kill the king, to go against the king, because the king can do whatever he wants. He has all authority. And if you continue to do that, you're going to find yourself in an early grave. So obey, stay, run away, run away, run away, 
And four, wait. Wait, look at he says. Verse five, whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. He says, if you're in a situation with somebody who has more power than you, you need to wait and be patient because the time will come when you will be able to do what's right. And we need to ask God for wisdom to know when that is the right time. Now, we have examples in Scripture, don't we, of people who lived under evil queens and kings who had to decide when's the best time to do things. You remember Nehemiah. He heard that the walls had been broken down in Jerusalem, and so he knew that if he went before the king and he was sad, that that was a capital offense, that you could be killed. So he's before the king, and he looks sad, and the king says, what's wrong with you? You look kind of sad, and he starts to fear because he knows I could lose my life. And then he prays. And then God gives him the words to say, and God gave him favor. Remember Esther, before she went in before the king, she she was scared. She knew, I can't just bust into the king's room. I'm his wife, I'm his queen, but that doesn't mean that I still can't be hurt. And she waited for just the right time before she did anything. My phone's ringing too, that's weird. So she waited. How about Daniel? Remember Daniel? He had these opportunities to go against what the king had said. I want you to eat this food. And instead of saying, no, we're going to believe, we we know what our God says we're supposed to do. He didn't say that. He said, hey, how about we find a compromise? See, there are times in your life as a believer where it's, you need to obey. Sometimes you need to stay. Sometimes you need to run away. Sometimes you you need to wait and be patient because the right time, God will give you wisdom as to what you are supposed to do. If you look at verse 7, it says, Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As much authority and power as kings have, they don't know the future. Verse 8, And as no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. So as much power as kings have, they don't even have power to control the weather, and they don't even have power to control the time of their own death. They can't keep their own spirit in their body. When it's time to go, it's time to go. There's nothing they can do. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practiced it. So here's what he said. You know, before war, if you got scared and you wanted to leave, they'd say, look, you can go. Like, I'm scared. They're going to start shooting at me. I don't like that, so I want to leave. Okay, cool. I'm ready. But once the war starts... You can't get there and hit the first bullet. Nah, I'm out. You can't do that. Because once you're in the battle, you're in the battle. And that's what he's saying. Once you're in it, wickedness in that same sense will not let go of the one who practices it. And so he's saying you, as the one who is, you're living under this authority, you need to know that the ultimate authority is not in, in the king. The ultimate authority is in God. And because of that, Verse 9, all this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. So this king, he sees 
dies, is buried, and the very place where he did his wickedness, people come, they honor him, and there's two different translations for praise. It could be forgotten. So either the, the king is praised, and he was a horrible person, or the funeral happens, and he's forgotten, and it's over. It's too is meaningless. In other words, just to have all the power, all the authority in the end, you die. So how do you live under authority? Wisely, trust God, and so in, in your situation, maybe you're under a boss that you really don't like or a situation that you really don't like. Maybe you don't like the situation we're in with our government, and so you're, you're dealing with all kinds of feelings of anger. I don't know where you are with this, but God wants us to live under even ungodly authority in a way that is wise. Because if we don't live wisely, we'll, we'll end up hurting ourselves. Now, here's the second thing. How do we live under absurdity? absurdity. Have you noticed, have you looked around and said, sometimes things in this life don't make sense? Here, here are three things he's going to say. Here's the first one. What's the, the, the motivation for wickedness? The motivation for wickedness. Look at verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Here's what he's saying. What is the motivation for wickedness? One of the motivations for wickedness is when justice is slow. When punishment for your crimes is not met quickly. He says that motivation for wickedness increases. You are just filled with schemes to do that which is wrong and evil because you know nothing is going to happen to you. You guys remember the steroid era in baseball? It was an exciting time. All kinds of records were being broken. We actually had the chance to watch Barry Bonds. We got tickets to go to see Barry Bonds right when he was getting ready to break the record. And so we got the tickets, and someone had the smart idea, let's ride with Atien. <laughs> and he was late. And we started on our way to the Giants game. And we're listening to it in the car, and we're in the city, and we're like, this is a historical moment. We should be there. And then we hear, back, 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 back. It is out of here. The car was silent. It was me, my dad, Jonathan, and AT. It was silent. We were like, we're all thinking, who's going to choke him first? And he, he was so nervous. <laughs> and then we walked, into the, we walked into the park, went to our seats, and they're like, oh, you missed it. The ball was hit right here. And we looked at ATM. Oh, man. Terrible. But that was an exciting time. We, it, we had so much fun watching. But here's the thing. People was cheating. And the reason they were doing it is because they knew that they weren't testing. They can get away with it. In fact, widespread testing didn't even come to the whole league until 2003. So when people know, well, nothing's going to happen to me, they just continue. This is what kids do, right? They're always running diagnostic tests to see how far can I go before my parent hurts me. And then they go, oh, there's, there's one line. My daughter's in his face now. She's looking at me. I asked her to do something. She's just going to look. How many times does he have to tell me before he gets up? 
and we've got to say, hey, we got to do it quickly because she's going to, she's going if, if, like the women in my family don't want that to happen. <laughs> so, and I, I know some of us, if you think about your life before you came to Christ, before you knew Jesus, Y'all looking at me holy. I can't see your face that well, but before you came to Jesus, you know that you did things, and the reason you did them is because, you know, I'm not going to get in trouble. Nobody's going to care about this. This is all over our society, isn't it? Right out down the street, when you uh, leave from here, that shopping center, a little place that has Starbucks, that little uh, um, stop area, what do you call it, uh, intersection, you know that people run those lights, like crazy. I'm talking, you wait five seconds, and I've seen semi-trucks come flying through there. And so I don't even go through it left for five seconds. But you remember, I don't even see them anymore. Remember back in the day, they used to have cameras on the top, and if you went through, the, the light would flash? That would stop people. People, I used to see people stop in the middle of the intersection. <laughs> and come back. I ain't trying to get caught. Because they know when they, when, when justice is slow, it, it just feels we have a motivation to do what's wrong. This week, uh, we got to meet with the police chief in Petaluma. They wanted to meet with the different faith leaders in town because they wanted to find out what could be done to um, increase or to make a better relationship between the police and the community. So they were asking the different faith leaders what we thought and what our communities might say. So really productive conversation and a lot of good things we think will come out of that. But one of the things that they said in the meeting that was of interest to me was the fact that it's, it could be very um, disappointing when you do all the work to put somebody in the jail, to arrest them, and they're out the very next day. It can make it very deflating. Like, what's the point? Why do this if they're just going to get out the next day? And in that same vein, how many times have we seen and we always say there are good cops, bad cops. In every system, there are bad apples. There are bad doctors. There are bad nurses. There are bad paramedics. There are bad real estate agents. Bad people everywhere. But what's horrible is when the bad people can continue to do the bad stuff and the good people say nothing. How many police officers know of other police officers doing things that are wrong, harassing people, and say nothing? Why is it that wickedness can increase and continue to go? Is because people just say that nothing is going to happen. But that leads us to the second point, not just the motivation for wickedness, but the mirage of wickedness. Look at verse 11, no, 12. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. The mirage of wickedness is the fact that people believe that by doing wicked things, actually that nothing bad's going to happen. It's all going to be good. Because what they experience in life is nothing but good things that happen to them when they do that which is evil. And it's a perplexing thing for the righteous. The psalmists write about this a lot. Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2 says, Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. Ever been envious of someone who does wrong? For like the grass, they will soon wither. 
Like green plants, they will soon die away. If you've ever been envious of someone who is evil because you look at what they have, listen to what Asaph says. This is Psalm 73, starting verse 3. He says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Does anybody read that and go, "Uh aha, that's what I've been saying. What's the point? Then all day long I've been afflicted, and every, new, every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. It's not until he came to church. Since then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes, when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. It looks like God's not going to do anything. It looks like they're winning, but here's the mirage of evil. It looks good now, but it's not real. And in the end, it's not going to end well. And the reason why God does that, and this is going to be good news, and you will rejoice when you hear this, what if Jesus came back in 1994? Some of you would not be saved. Some of you wouldn't even be here. The fact that God did not punish you when you deserved it, you should praise God because he is slow to anger. He is abounding in love, not wanting anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. So sometimes I think we pray and talk like, God, I wish you would just come back now. And we do long for the coming of God, but there are people I want to be with me with the Lord. So I'm grateful that he's slow. Here's the last one, the mix-up of wickedness. So we've seen the motivation of wickedness, the mirage of wickedness, now the mix-up of wickedness. Look at verse 14. There is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. He says it feels like in in this world, the righteous and the wicked have their order switched. I got what they ordered. I didn't order this. Back in 99, when our church burnt, you imagine what was going through our mind. We've just been preaching the gospel faithfully, feeding the hungry, clothing those who have no clothes, building a 25-unit uh, senior housing complex. And our church burned down? And the sex trafficker's home 
is standing with no problems? What sense does that make? It seems like, at times, everything is mixed up. Why am I getting what I think should happen to someone who does wrong? And why are the people who are doing wrong seemingly blessed? It's a mix-up. I don't like that. Now, unfortunately, some people came into the, into the faith with the wrong impression. Someone told you, if you come to Jesus, you will be the head and not the tail. You come to Jesus, money, 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 come to me now. You will be rich. You will never need a tune-up. Your kids will always obey. And these people run away from the faith because they say, this is not what I ordered. Where in the Bible did God ever say that is the case? It is when people read the Bible out of context, teach the Bible out of context. Now, again, we're not running to the jaws of, of trouble. We're not looking for trouble. But the Bible is clear that Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. So when it seems like, man, there's a mix-up, just understand, there is no promise in the Bible that we'll live this life and there'll be no issues, there'll be no problems. The place he does promise us that we will have everlasting joy and bliss in his presence is in heaven. That is the place where we will have no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Now, if we get to heaven and you start seeing sin, then be very concerned. You come outside your house on a... Wonderful heaven morning, you just see somebody getting mugged in front of your house. <laughs> you go to Jesus, Jesus, I saw somebody getting mugged. He <laughs> took his crown and everything. Be very concerned if you see sin in heaven. But you will never, ever, ever have to worry about that because that will be banished forever. But here, in this life, in this world, no. It's been called the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. You know what the Achilles heel of the Christian faith? Now, I don't know if you know who Achilles was. He was a Greek war hero, and apparently the only place on his body where he could be hurt was on his Achilles. His mother had dipped him in this river and forgot to dip his whole body in there, so now he had this Achilles that was open, and so if you hit that, then he would crumble. That's where we the actual, the Achilles heel comes from him, that whole story. But the Achilles heel, it's, it's used as a way to say the weakness of something. What people say is the Achilles heel of Christianity. What they say the Achilles heel of Christianity is the existence of evil. How is it that you can say that God is who he is and reconcile that with evil in the world? Let me explain it this way, illustrate it this way. Outside behind us, there's a street, and imagine one of the children here in our congregation is standing in the street, and a car is coming, and you're standing there, and that car comes, and you just watch as the car comes and hits the child. Now, if, if somebody comes out and says, okay, what happened here? One of two things is true. Either you wanted to save the child, but you couldn't because you didn't have the power to. Maybe you were tied up. Maybe there was a wall. There was something preventing you from saving the child. 
The other option is that you didn't want to save the child because you're an evil person. You just watched as this happened. So either you wanted to do it but didn't have the power, or you had the power to do it, but because you're, you're evil, you, just, you didn't do anything. And so this is what they lay at the feet of Christians. They say, if God is who you say he is, you say he's all-powerful, he's omnipotent, and you say that he is good. If that's true, how is it that God allows the things that happen to people, innocent people? You say, well, if he's good, he would stop it, right? Because he has the power. And because he doesn't, that must mean that he's not good. And if he wants to stop it, but he can't, then it must mean he's not all powerful. And so what people want to do is figure out a way, how can we explain this? And this is where the word theodicy comes. It comes from two Greek words, theos and dikos, which are two words for God and for justification. And a theodicy is when we try to justify God. We're trying to get God off the hook. How can God be not responsible for the evil we see in the world? And so how, how do we figure this out? And there's different theodicies that are put forward to try and justify God. And here's, if you've ever thought about this, if you've ever read this at all, one of the things you will notice very, very quickly is that it is impossible to understand. If somebody comes to you and says, I can explain it, have them talk to me. Because I have seen nothing. And scholars and people 30 million times smarter than me have said that that doesn't work. And there are reasons why it doesn't work. How do you explain evil in the world? How do you explain God's actions in the world. And the, the wise response to these things is to look at verse 16. Jump to verse 16 of chapter 8. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all God had done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. In the end, he says, there are things that belong only to God. Martin Luther said his answer to the problem of evil is God is God. If you think you can figure out why God does what he does, then you're not wise. Now, if this bothers you, this idea of mix-ups and the things that happen in this world. Let me remind you of the gospel that we preach. Do you know anyone that is more righteous than Jesus? And yet he, the righteous, got what the wicked deserved. Do you know anyone who suffered more than Jesus suffered? He suffered on the cross more than anyone else. For who? The sins of the whole world. Our sin, the sin of all of us laid upon him. He was innocent. The one who was innocent for the ones who were guilty. 
Now, if you say, that's not fair, God, why you do that? God, why would you allow that to happen to Jesus? You should have saved him. Now, we think about it, we say, well, I don't know if I want that to happen. Because if that happens, then I wouldn't be saved. Have you ever thought about the fact, had it ever dawned on you that we sing joyously about a guy being murdered? Have you ever thought about that? They hung him high. They stretched him wide. This is, this is somebody being killed. Jesus, you died for me. Jesus, you took the nails for me. They pierced you in the side. They whipped you, and we're just tears running down our face, happy. Why? The righteous for the unrighteous. See, this is why we cannot question God. This is why we cannot question his wisdom, because if God did what we would have done, he would, we would have saved Jesus. But because of what he did on the cross, you and I have eternal life. Amen. So what does Koheleth want us to do? What does he want, how does he want us to respond? You should know it already because he says this is the fourth time you've said it. Verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. Be careful not to read this the way it's used in other places in the Bible, like, oh, we're going to die anyway, so we might as well just have a party and get drunk. And No, it's not saying that. This is a responsible, worshipful response to the goodness of God, to enjoy his gifts. This is the fourth time he's talked about how do you deal with the, the life that we're living under the sun with all of its complexities, bad authority and absurdities of life and all. He says, just enjoy what you have. He says, enjoy food and enjoy drink. And I want you to understand joy is found both in the experience and the anticipation. It's found in the experience and in the anticipation. Think about it. Isn't there just as much joy in the anticipation of Christmas as there is in the day of Christmas? We find joy in both. It's the holiday season, right? It's not even Christmas yet, but it's the anticipation of it that brings joy. And then there's joy when we actually experience the actual day. So think about food and think about drink. When God gives us these things to enjoy... Remember what I said last time, that he gives you not just the ability to, uh, he doesn't just give you the things to enjoy, he also gives you the ability to enjoy them. Amen. He gives you a can of fruit cocktail and a can opener. No one is joyful that they have a vault full of jelly beans and they got no key to the vault. You have to have the ability to enjoy which God has given to you. And so enjoy life, enjoy food. Eat, 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 eat. <laughs> and like, you know, maybe you're going to go to a restaurant. Are you going to go to a restaurant, eat some good food? Or maybe you just go to your house and you can make food at your own house. Man, I remember back in the day, we used to go to Derek's house and he would make these burgers. To this day, top three burgers I've ever had in my life. He had this uh, barbecue sauce he got from someone that he worked with. I'm telling you. Those of you guys who had it, remember. Oh, my Lord. And we would 
He would cook those burgers on the grill. We would have so much fun. And then we'd go inside and watch the fight. Antonio Tarver, Roy Jones Jr., Mike Tyson. We'd have a good time and we'd fellowship together. That's what he's talking about. Enjoy food. Put some food on the grill. Drink. Enjoy life. But also, we need to find joy in the anticipation of something that's even greater. Because if you just enjoy what we have now and you don't think about what the food and what the drink and what the, the enjoyment points to, then you will miss what God wants you to see in it because it is what the food and the drink point to. Because all we know that you will soon get to the last crumb of cheesecake and then it will be gone. And you know that eventually you get to the bottom of the glass of wine or your Shirley Temple. <laughs> because you know food and drink and all of the pleasures of this world, eventually they don't really satisfy. Amen. They are pointing to something that's even greater. I've used this quote 52,000 times, but it's from C.S. Uh, Lewis, and I think because it's just perfect. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud, mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too far easily pleased. What does food, what does drink, what does enjoyment point to? What should it make us long for? It should make us long for paradise restored. Eden restored. Remember, when God made Adam and Eve, what did he say to them? Eat. He didn't say, watch your calories. You only got 2,000. Eat all you want. This is before sin. Before sin, he said, I've given you abundance. Enjoy that. But what was the thing that thrilled them more than all the food? It was Walking with God in the cool of the day. What did they lose? Yeah, they lost the garden. But what did they lose more importantly than that? They lost God. And the whole Bible, the entire Bible, is about God pursuing man to bring us back to what we had in the garden. Even in Genesis chapter 3, you see the seeds of the gospel, the proto-evangelium. In Genesis chapter 3, it said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You see him making garments for them to wear, picturing that one day he would sacrifice and cover their nakedness in order to bring them back to God. It's all about coming back to him. This is what Jesus said in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just about having life, it's about knowing God. So as we're living between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven, and we're waiting for the return of the true king, let me quote the psalmist who said, this is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. 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 You bow your head.